you might want to, if you have a Bible, open up to this passage, because uh, uh, as often I do, I actually repeat the passage in my sermon, and so there's a reason why I do that, because I think we ought to hear it multiple times with multiple voices, uh, and so I know this is a long passage, but you're going to probably want to just put your finger in it uh, so you can follow along. What do you really believe about Jesus? What do you really believe he can do? What do you believe that he actually has done for you? And then how has your life demonstrated that belief? Or how does it demonstrate it? What limitations do you put on Jesus in your life? What holds you back from truly understanding who Jesus is and living that out with your faith and actions in life? In John 11, 1 through 4, it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I'm just going to pause for a moment here, is that in the previous passage, right, we were back probably two or three months into the Feast of Dedication, uh, Hanukkah, where he was in the temple, and you can remember the thing that he told them in the temple was, pause, wait, don't worry what I'm saying about myself, look at my actions, and what does that say? And he's doing this in the temple, and of course, they want to know, they actually, he claims that the father and him are one, they, they want to pick up, they pick some stones, they want to stone, stone him, and he kind of flees for that. So he has, Jesus and his disciples have fled from Jerusalem, they've gone north, it's been two or three months, because this passage takes about a, a couple weeks, or just around, before he gets to the cross. So he's just coming outside of Jerusalem, and it's just a couple weeks before he dies on the cross, so we don't know. It's two or three months. You kind of understand the time lake. So he's eventually going to come back down to Jerusalem. So he tells the, he tells the messengers that, right, messengers tell him, like, hey, Lazarus is ill. And Jesus says, hey, whatever is attacking him, whatever he's ill, whatever he is, hey, whatever that issue in his life, well, it will not lead to death. But the purpose of this the purpose of this story, the purpose of my delay, the purpose of Lazarus' life, it will lead to the glory of God. More specifically, it will lead to you see my glory. I will be glorified by God. What's interesting and you see in the Gospel of John is that Jesus and the Father seek their mutual glory. Jesus seeks the glory of the Father, and the Father seeks the glory of the Son. John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, Jesus says. I glorify you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In John 10, 3, he actually says, I and the Father are one. And here he says, this story is meant that the Father will glorify me. I and the Father are one. One God. And this is that, that quote is the reason why they want to stone him in the first place. The reason why they, they, they want to kill him. The purpose of the whole book of John is so that you might glorify the Son. 
John 31, 20:31. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that you may believe in order that you may have life, everlasting, abundant life. I just want you to hold on to the point of this story as it goes on. Jesus knows the end of Lazarus' story. And this is what he says. The end of Lazarus' story will not end in death. The end of Jesus' story will not end in death. And brothers and sisters, hear it clearly. Your story will not end in your death. Your story will include your death, but it will not be the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. Jesus gets the last word. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Those sentences don't go together, do they, in your mind? Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again, go back south. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to him, our friend Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Why doesn't Jesus, why does Jesus stay? And why doesn't he immediately go to Lazarus? Says he loves him. You have to remember at the very beginning, Jesus says, I have a plan. My plan is that the Father is going to glorify me in this and that you will believe in me. Jesus intentionally delays rushing to Lazarus. Why? Because he knows the story will not end in death. He also knows that there's far, something far worse than physical death in this world. That's being separated from the Father. I kind of ask, why doesn't Jesus go right away? Why doesn't he listen and go right away? And the, the question that kind of pondered with me was, that's actually not the question I said, is actually, why don't I listen to Jesus right away? Why don't I immediately listen to Jesus? I, I just did a skit, and the, the struggle with that skit for me was I actually had to remember what Jesus was saying in silence to me to remember my next line. And that is harder than you think. But I thought, what a great metaphor in my life that I need to remember what Jesus is saying to me. You and I need to listen. Listen to him. He's being very clear in this passage to disciples, and yet they still are not understanding him. Jesus has a plan. 
Jesus decides he will go to Judea, which is near Jerusalem, which is where the people want to kill him. And the disciples said, hey, you can't go there. That's where they want to kill you. You see, the disciples are immediately saying, look, we're here to protect you. We are fearing the power of other men, and we fear death. We have a plan for you. This isn't a good plan. And then Jesus uses this metaphor. They're, they're stumbling in the darkness. They're stumbling with the idea on their plan. And Jesus says, no, no, don't fear other men. I am the light of the world, and I'm with you now. Follow me. You see, part of the problem that they have is they really don't understand who Jesus is. I mean, they confess a lot of things about him, but they truly do not understand who he is and the authority and power that he has. They even misinterpret the common colloquialism that this phrase of, of sleep, which is often from them, they would understand that that means death. But they don't even understand that. And he's like, no, no, I mean he's dead. And Lazarus has died so that you may believe. And this is the point, that we may believe. And then, uh, you know, by the way, this is Thomas the doubter. Thomas is not really a doubter here. He is bold and courageous here. I mean, he's foolish. He has no idea what he's saying. Like, yeah, let's go die with Lazarus. Like, what, Thomas? Like, <laughs> that doesn't seem like a great plan either, Thomas, which is not Jesus' plan. And verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. The key idea here is Lazarus was dead for four days. Now, this is not a true thing in the fact that, but they be, Jews at this time had a superstition belief. They believed that when a person died, their body, their spirit hung around for three days until a decomposition started. And then when decomposition started, well, there was no way that resurrection could happen. And the soul went down to Sheol, the place of the dead, where the dead came. And then uh, just like Mary and Martha and, and some of the Pharisees believed, they believed in the resurrection the last day, that God would resurrect his people. Uh, uh, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. But, but they believed this. And so four days, it's beyond this. And his body, you'll learn later on, starts to smell and stink. Jesus is really kind of delaying, not because he's buying into their superstition, because he's really want to point out to them, hey, Lazarus is dead, dead. He's not just not partly dead. And it's not that they actually ever saw someone resurrected. It's just they had this kind of superstition. So Jesus delays to make sure everyone knows his power and his way. And Martha is not rebuking Jesus here. This is not a rebuke. Like, if you would have been here, he would have been okay. This is actually an expression of grief and faith. This is an expression like, hey, my brother is dead. But I know that you had the power, if you were here, you could overcome it. That's a great profession of faith, but yet it is lacking, isn't it? She still doesn't know who Jesus is and his power. Jesus actually doesn't need to be physically present for Lazarus to be healed. Jesus doesn't even need to be 
present to heal through someone they're sick. Death is not a barrier to him. What limitations do we put on Jesus in our life? Like there's, there's certain areas like, okay, he can work in this area, but you know, this is too much for him. What holds you back from truly understanding who Jesus is and living out that way through your faith and your actions? And living, I mean, it's one thing to profess something, but actually to live out that profession. What holds you back? Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus reminds Martha again that her brother will be resurrected. And something that she understood, yes, I know, in the last day, a common belief. I know he'll be resurrected, but he's dead now. And Jesus says, turns to her and uses this I am statement, which John has used over and over again, this, this I am statement that's connected to this, this introduction that God has to his people, that I am the great I am. Jesus said, I, I, I am God. And no, no, I am resurrection. And I am life. This is before Jesus has died, where he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And there's two things. Resurrection and life, they're different things. You may seem like they sound redundant or the same thing, but here's the understanding. Resurrection is, a, is the idea that alive in the bodies, that he will be resurrected. That's like Martha understands. I know Lazarus, Lazarus will be resurrected in the last days. I know he will have a physical body again. I know that will happen. And so Jesus says, I am that resurrection. But he also says, I am life. And here's the difference. One is a physical resurrection and one is a spiritual resurrection. Jesus says, I am life. And I will give you, right in John 10, 10, the abundant, everlasting life right now. Life with God. And then he has those two things. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. It's not talking about two different people. It's the same person. It's implied that it's the same person that he's talking about. Whoever believes in me, even though they will physically die, they will physically be- resurrect. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die because they have spiritual life that's everlasting. The physical and the spiritual. And the amazing thing is that Jesus puts this, it's not future tense. It is present. It says, I am currently the resurrection. I am currently the life. I am always the resurrection. I am always life. Even though there have been four days, Lazarus is in the place of Sheol, the place of death. He is not beyond the power of Jesus. It goes to this point where Jesus was back in that, the passage earlier in John 10, where he says, I want you to look at my works. What do your works tell you about who I am? I know my, my words are upsetting you. 
I, I know they're confusing you and they're disruptive to you, but I'm telling you, put the, works, the words of silent for a moment. And what do my works tell you who I am? Jesus, in just a moment, is going to resurrect Lazarus. What do those works tell you that I am? I mean, he tells people who he is, but he said, just pause that for a moment because I know that's disruptive. And then put those two together. You see, the enemy of Jesus is death. It's not you and I. It's not anyone. It's death. And you and I are not helpless humans in the face of death if we're with Jesus. Because death doesn't have the last word. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, the, the, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has the last word. Jesus is sovereign over all, even death. And Jesus turns and asks the question, the, the purpose question of the whole gospel. And he asks Martha this, do you believe that I am this resurrection and life? And Mar Martha makes a fairly good profession of faith once again, but still misses the point. She says, yeah, I, I believe you're the Christ that was sent into this world, the Son of God. She doesn't say, yes, I believe you're the resurrection and the life. Yes, I believe you have power over all these things. Her, her faith actions in this moment doesn't live up to her profession of actually who Jesus is. Because she has a limited understanding. She doesn't actually understand that the Father and the Son are actually one. Which goes back to our point. How do your actions, how do the way that you live your life and profess your faith, live that out, how do they actually point out that Jesus is Lord of all? Everything in your life, including your death, and your demise. It's been a lesson I've had to learn over the last couple of months that I have not liked to learn. It's a lesson that Linda has been learning, that the, the diagnosis is not the ass word, Linda. It's not a good, it's not an easy word. It's not the last word. Verses 28 through 35. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come yet into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when, Je when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? 
they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now, what I'm going to tell you here is that our English translation does a terrible job of actually giving you the understanding of the tone and the magnitude of this moment. The first question you have to ask is, why does Jesus weep? And many of us will say, well, it's because Jesus is grieved because it's Lazarus has died and he loved Lazarus. But yet we're told at the very beginning that he knows death is not the last word of this story and that there's a greater purpose to this story. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus grieves in this moment because the people don't understand who he is. He's made this very clear. This story is about glorifying me so that you may believe. And yet there's none, even the closest to him, Mary and Martha and the disciples, they don't even understand yet who he is. And they've been with him three plus years. And he's grieved in this moment, not because Lazarus is dead, not because people are wailing around him, because they don't understand who he is. Now, Jesus saw there was, uh, so traditionally, if there was someone died, you had to, you hired a professional weeper, two flute players, and you, that was, it, they, they knew how to mourn. And so uh, they mourned and they sat with people and they lived. And so here you actually hear that there's more than one professional wailer. I mean, and, and this weeping is not like a tear. It's like a wailing of like intense from your soul wailing. And we see there's more of these people wailing and professing. And, and it says in that moment when Jesus sees them, he's deeply moved. But here's actually, it's better translated, this word. He's outraged is what that word means. Jesus is outraged in what he's seen. He's indignant to this. He is upset with the grief that is going around him because they're grieving a person has died. And the next word is that he's, he's greatly troubled. He's, he's deeply moved by this, right? He's, 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 he's angry and he's grieved. And the we when it says Jesus weep or he wept, it's not the same word as they use for the other people that are weeping in the story. The weeping with other people, are it's the wailing. It's this professional wailing, which is not insincere. But the word they use for Jesus, a totally different word. It means he shed a tear. He's not outwardly wailing. Much like Jody just did here when he got teary-eyed when you start talking about Linda. That's the kind of what Jesus did. He got teary-eyed, upset. He's outraged. He's grieved. He sheds a tear. Not for Lazarus. For what's going on around. Jesus is upset because Mary and Martha and his disciples, that they all fear death. He is angry. I, I don't want you to, to lessen this word. He's outraged because the people closest to him don't understand who he is, what authority, and what power he has. Not through his words do they understand it. Not through his works do they understand it. What angers you? I mean, we all get angry. What, what outrages you in this world and in your life? And then what grieves you in this world? I mean, this is the two emotions Jesus is having this morning. Outrage and grief. What grieves you in this world 
Is it someone dying in your family? Do you get outraged by that? Yeah, I think at times we often get angry with God at that. Are we grieved in that? I hope so. Is it, is it losing someone, maybe in a relationship? Yeah, maybe. Is it, is it war that we see in this world? I think so. I would hope so. Is it sin in your own life? Probably not as much as it should be. Is it people walking around that don't know Jesus? That don't know who he is? That don't know what his power and authority is? That they don't understand that he is life and resurrection with them. Is that what angers you? Is that what grieves you? It's what grieves Jesus. It's what outrages Jesus. This is actually a fascinating thing. This is what outrages Jesus, is people don't know what he is. Now, don't assume his anger is like your anger. Thanks be to God, it is not. And he grieves that people don't know who he is. D.A. Carson says this, the same sin and death, the same unbelief that prompts his outrage also generates his grief. Those who follow Jesus as disciples today do well to learn the same tension, that grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment. Why outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance and irascibility. I had to look up that last word too. Anger. <laughs> I just want you to understand here is that Jesus lives in this tension. He is not angry without grief. He is not grieved without anger. And what is he grieved? Because look, I want you to think, if he was grieved without anger that we don't know him, he would be sad, he would be powerless, it'd be mere sin. I'm like, oh, that is too bad that they don't know me. But the thing is, when people don't know him, that is the sin. We talk about all the other sins in our life, all the things that we do, but the sin of all people is unbelief. And Jesus isn't just grieved that people don't believe him. He's angered by that. And his anger and grief doesn't paralyze him. It actually moves him to do something about it. He moves him to love. And if he has just anger without grief, how terrible that is in our lives. If we're just outraged by something, but actually not grieved. If you're just outraged that someone has harmed you and actually not grieved with actually the sin or whatever is going on in their life, that is very harmful to people. And it's harmful to you. This is not how Jesus, he's just not angry with us that we don't know who he is. He's grieved by it. He's moved by it. Because he loves you. Do you see how those two tied together and yet we separate these two all the time? I'm just angry. Or I'm just going to be grieved. Those who do anything. They're meant to. Anger and grief is motivated to do something. And to love. We ought to be outraged and grieved that people around us don't know who Jesus is and his authority and power in their life. 
in verse 36 through 40. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? They don't even understand what's going on still. But some of them said, could not, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind men, also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved, outraged, this is what, outraged again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there's an odor in there, for he had been dead for four days. She doesn't understand still, even in his anger. It's like, Lord, this is not a good idea. Let's not do this. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believed, if you knew who I was, you're going to see that the Father is going to glorify me. They all misunderstood. He repeats this purpose. I want you to know who I am. I want you to know the glory of God. In verses 41 through 46. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up the eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Did you hear that? Jesus is speaking aloud in the past tense. Meaning, he has already had a conversation with the Father about Lazarus. He's already asked the Father to do this for Lazarus. This is past tense. This is done. And then he says, I'm just, uh, Father, that you know, I, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I say this on the account of people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me, that they may believe that you and I are one, that you, you do what I ask you to do, and I do what you ask me to do. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips. Some actually commentators, I don't know if this is true, but I actually like this idea, said that Jesus actually had to say Lazarus' name. Otherwise, everybody would have been resurrected and come out of the tombs. <laughs> like, he had to be very specific here, right? <laughs> so, you know, I was glad for that because I just want to creep a lot of people out there. Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I want you to think about that. They like go rat him out. But Jesus said, I want you to pay attention to what I do because it points to who I am. And even when they see what he's done, they don't believe. You can remember the last, the last passage I told you that Jesus tries to pause their anger and so I want you to pause, I want you to reflect, I want you to know and understand. And here he does this moment at the pause. I want you to know and understand that the Father and I are one. That there's an intimate relationship here. This is the last public act, great public act, that Jesus does before he goes to the cross. This is the last thing he does. In the next, the next couple of chapters that we read in John, it's going to be right into Jerusalem. Jesus has communicated something very clear that he has power over death, that he resurrects, that he's currently the resurrection, that nothing is outside of his control. Jesus is Lord. That nothing is outside his power. Jesus is Lord. Eugene Peterson says it this way in his uh, book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. The do-it-yourself 
self-help culture of America has so thoroughly permeated our imaginations that uh, we don't give much sustained attention to the biggest thing of all, resurrection. And the reason we don't give much attention to it is because the resurrection is not something we can use or manipulate or control or improve on. It is interesting that the world has very little success in commercializing Easter, although it tries, turning into a commodity the way it has Christmas. If we can't, as we say, get a handle on it and use it, we soon lose interest. But resurrection is not available for our use. It's the exclusive, it is exclusively God's operation. This is God's sovereign power to bring life. No one else in this world brings life. Only God could bring physical life, spiritual life, new life. What do we really believe about Jesus in our life? When we profess Jesus as Lord, what do we mean in our life? Do we mean to understand there is nothing outside of his control, outside of his power? Do we mean and understand that there's no moment of our life that is beyond him and too overwhelming for him? You and I may not be and probably are not able to handle the moments in our life right now. But he can. He can. He will and he has. He is working all things for our good, and you can remember that our good in Romans 8 is actually our resurrection, our sanctified life. That he is working everything in this world, including our death, for our good, for our resurrected life. For spiritual resurrection, a life present tense that is resurrected God life right now. And that one day, you and I will die and will be resurrected physically. A physical resurrection that I cannot explain. That is beyond our imagination. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let our life and our words show and reveal this profession. Let our hearts and minds be angered and greed for those that do not understand and do not know who Jesus is. Let us weep, shed a tear like Jesus for the walking dead among us. And let us be moved in love towards them. Let us glorify the Son in our words and our deeds so that others may know Jesus and be resurrected, present tense, right now. And live the everlasting life. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, these words humble me. I know at times that I take control, or try to take control, shall I say. I know I forget that you're present and that you forget your power and who you are. I fearfully ask that you remind me, that you remind all of us each and every day, Lord, move our hearts to be angry for what you're angry about, to be grieved for what you're grieved about, and always move us in love towards other people. Let our lives live out the profession that you are Lord of all. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.